Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. I'd like to begin this episode by focusing and following up on something I wrote about recently. Um, this, In particular, this was the long-standing United States policy of using widespread torture during interrogation of prisoners or anyone that's being held in detention. And what I'd like to point out is that this policy is regularly assisted by physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, etc., who teach Americans and their allies how to inflict maximum pain and suffering without killing the subject. In fact, they are often kept on hand to revive prisoners who pass out so that those prisoners can be subjected to even more torture. And I'm not talking about isolated situations. Again, this is policy. For example, a November 2013 study found that medical personnel who worked in military branches or for U.S. intelligence agencies allowed, quote, cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment, close quote, of prisoners while acting at the direction of military leaders under both the Bush and Obama administrations. In December 2014, a Senate Select Committee on Intelligence reported, among other things, a doctor who x-rayed one prisoner's feet and determined that they were badly broken, but another physician recommended that that prisoner could be made to stand for 52 consecutive hours. When a detainee was unable to see out of one of his eyes, only then did a doctor suggest that they stop the physical torture affecting that particular area. And a team of doctors decided that prisoners could be waterboarded, which simulates drowning, up to three times a day. While a small team of psychologists designed this particular program, dozens of other medical professionals oversaw it. The two psychologists who developed the CIA's torture program eventually formed a company called Mitchell, Jessen, and Associates and got more than $80 million from the government for their services. I could go on, but I'd rather speak directly to those of you who are still somewhat or totally buying into the current narrative, because maybe you didn't know any of what I just said before you opted to fully trust your government, corporate science, media propaganda, and the medical mafia for the past two years and counting. But now you do know, so I've got to ask, how quickly are you going to start thinking, feeling, acting, and living differently? As I have discussed before, our literal autonomy and survival depend on it. Now, unless you've opted to bury your head in the sand, you can see that big tech and big pharma have teamed with governments and media outlets in an attempt to create and control a narrative. To challenge this dangerous trend, we need people to speak out and fight back. If so-called misinformation is to be outlawed, we need to at least know what that term even means. That's why I've invited Dr. Merrill Nass onto Postwoke to speak with us today. Dr. Nass is an internist with special interests in vaccine-induced illnesses, chronic fatigue syndrome, Gulf War illness, fibromyalgia, toxicology, and much more. She is based in Maine. 
In her home state in late 2021, the Board of Licensure in Medicine issued a very strong position statement. In that statement, they warned that physicians could risk disciplinary action if they, quote, generate and spread COVID-19 vaccine misinformation or disinformation, close quote. The, the disciplinary action could include the suspension or revocation of their medical license. Dr. Nass challenged the board and has since been targeted by them. She had her medical license suspended and a psych evaluation was ordered on her for spreading quote unquote misinformation and for prescribing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. She'll be joining us to talk about her story and how it can help humanize the dystopian assault on our freedoms right after this short break. Dr. Merrill Ness, thanks for taking the time to talk with me and welcome to Post Woke. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. Um, please, I, I've heard you discuss your background and your story in different venues, but I would really appreciate it if you could um, you know, rewind a little bit and share with us what's been going on in your life as a physician over the past, specifically over the past two years with the pandemic, but as much background as you feel like is relevant to offer. Okay. Um, I, I'm an internal medicine doctor. I've been a doctor 41 years, and I had a part-time specialty practice uh, where I took care of patients with chronic Lyme disease, other chronic conditions that are hard to diagnose and treat, and um, and other patients who just, you know, wanted something that was a little more personal. I, I, I usually booked most appointments for an hour, sometimes longer. And so I had that kind of a practice. I had been involved with treating Gulf War syndrome and anthrax vaccine, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, et cetera. And I have also been sort of a medical activist. So I was very involved fighting the mandate to take anthrax vaccines in the military um, beginning 22 years ago. Wow. Um, and subsequent to that, I learned about all the other vaccines and the pros and cons. Now, at the, I also have, a, going back even further, I have a background in biological warfare. And uh, 30 years ago, I published a paper that dissected the world's largest anthrax epidemic, which occurred in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, um, 40 years ago. And I showed that it was due to biological warfare because it didn't have any of the characteristics of a normal epidemic. Um, when the pandemic began, I realized something wasn't right. The, the government public health response was not appropriate to the situation. They were not getting, they didn't develop a proper test. They didn't get it out in a timely way. They didn't admit what the problem was and they blocked other people from also issuing and offering tests. And uh, that was so odd because it allowed the virus to basically spread silently throughout the United States for the first two months of January and February. And finally, at the end of February, um, FDA said, now it was mostly CDC that was doing the suppression, but mm -hmm. F FDA said, okay, anybody who has a test, we're going to make it, we're now going to let you offer them, send us your paperwork. And the paperwork was too complicated, so almost no one did. And then towards 
about March 20th, the FDA did a completely odd turnaround and said, look, anybody who has a test, offer it to the public, send us the paperwork later. We're just going to let you start using them because we have such a dearth of tests. Wow. And it, yeah, and that was bizarre because, of course, it was leaving the door wide open for all sorts of bad tests. Um, I, Which promptly walked through that door. Yes, and, um, and didn't really necessarily help clarify things in terms of who's infected, who's contagious, and who isn't. Um, so given, I also read a couple of articles one in The Lancet, one in Nature Medicine that were written by groups of scientists, some of whom I knew or knew about, that said, uh, look, this is definitely a natural event. It didn't come from a lab, and we have to stop saying it came from a lab. That's a conspiracy theory. We need cooperation with the Chinese. We need to not piss them off. And I thought, wow, that's very odd to be in a scientific journal. This is really propaganda. And I wonder why. And the arguments that were used to say that it was a natural occurrence were uh, illogical. You know, they they didn't they didn't meet any standard. The article should never have been published in Nature Medicine. And so I said, you know, gosh, this is this is a cover up of some kind. And I decided to focus my try to you know weed down my practice. Um, so that I could focus almost entirely on COVID and, be, and began writing a lot of blog posts in beginning in February of 2020. Okay. And looking into very, each aspect of the pandemic over time. So I looked in, so I had, I had all, I looked into the PCR tests, into the mortality statistics, into the case definitions, the treatments, et cetera. And um, over time, uh, you know, I got to be more well-known for coming up with a lot of the right answers. Um, I, of course, being a doctor, my most important concern was how to treat patients, and I was immediately interested in the hydroxychloroquine option because I had, unlike most doctors, I had used a lot of hydroxychloroquine in my practice because it is a drug that can treat Lyme. For people who are who can't take doxycycline or go out in the sun and don't want to take it, hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin or another macrolid drug is a very good alternative. Wow, and okay. so I probably treated one to 200 patients with that over 20 years. So I was very comfortable with it. I knew it was safe. I had also myself, I've had malaria and I've spent six months in Africa. And so I've taken it prophylactically and for treatment. And so I knew it was safe for that and um, have used it occasionally for patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. When the government started saying it's not safe, I knew they were lying. And sure. I also was, the Chinese, the, one of the very best Chinese hospitals sent a contingent of doctors to Wuhan and then they published quickly by, I think around the end of February, a brochure of how to treat COVID, and the chloroquine drugs were listed as their primary treatment at that point. So uh, that, didn't, um, that didn't get any media coverage, as far as I can recall. 
No, no. It was we were. It was basically doctors passing it around amongst ourselves. You're right. I I blogged it. I mean, I put the link on my blog, but I didn't see it in the mass media at all. Um, and then my son, who's a doctor, came down with COVID in mid-March of 2020, working at a New York hospital, and I insisted that he get treated with it. And he came out of COVID pretty, he had a severe case for a few days and came out of it quickly. Right. So um, that was only one case, but the, certainly the numbers from other countries were looking good. The French, I um, uh, forget his name, from Marseille published, he's now seen thousands of, many thousands of patients and has a mortality rate of, uh, I think about 0.4%, very low mortality rate. At that point in the New York hospitals, if someone was admitted with COVID, you were looking at about a 20% mortality rate. I, I recall, I live in New York, I recall what the, the, because the, the hype was such that we were in ground zero and the, and the morgue trucks outside the hospitals and they, they portrayed it in a way that it was, it was initially almost impossible to understand and dissect media hype from medical reality. Yes. And that's certainly been the case for the, the entire pandemic. Yeah, hasn't good, it? good point. Yeah. And do when, since, since we're speaking of hydroxychloroquine, do you think that when Trump recommended it, that then that further demonized it in, in a way and made it easier for it to be pushed aside and have other drugs like remdesivir used? Yeah. Uh, so at the time, I thought people were just being stupid, you know, that Trump said it was a good thing, therefore it isn't. Later, I realized that the plan was to suppress it when there were, you know, dozens and dozens of mechanisms used to stop the use of the chloroquine drugs and that by dubbing it the Trump drug, you know, it was a stroke of genius because automatically half the country didn't want it at that point. Yeah. Um, I, th you know, I mean, in hindsight, it looks like everything was planned ahead of time. And things were rolled out, like the suppression, the suppression of hydroxychloroquine didn't have to be rolled out in January because it wasn't popularized. So once it got popularized by Trump, then the suppression was immediately applied. That same week, yeah. um, a number of states, uh, like 30 states, um, suppressed hydroxychloroquine either in a bunch of different ways. So the states were apparently given options. In New Jersey, it was the Consumer Affairs Bureau put a restriction on it. In New York, the governor said it couldn't be used for outpatients. In my state, it could be used for acute COVID, but not for prophylaxis. So all these different measures were put into place um, pretty much immediately, right after Trump uh, said on television that this may be a gift from God, you know, whatever else he said. He made a, yeah. a bunch of statements close together, and um, then the suppression started. The same thing happened later with ivermectin. While very few people knew about ivermectin and not too many prescriptions were being written for it, there wasn't really much suppression. But when, when the FLCCC doctors, especially Pierre Corey and Paul Marek, began really pushing it and their organization became much more well known 
and lots of prescriptions started to be written in, last August, the CDC came in immediately, and then the state, uh, some state agencies did also, and put the kibosh on ivermectin. Yeah. Yeah, from what I've read also that the, it, in order to get the emergency use, use authorization for the um, COVID vaccines, there had to be no viable alternatives, which would be another reason to put the kibosh on both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, because if these existing drugs were effective, um, then it would have been technically a lot harder for the FDA to kind of ram it through. They probably would have found a way to do it anyway, but it was a lot easier after demonizing these drugs. And also um, through the CARES Act, they, they they set in place these protocols, which which made hospitals keep kept health practitioners with their hands tied in terms of what really they were able to do. Exactly. So once you started giving financial incentives to hospitals to, hello, are you there? I'm, I'm there. Oh, good. Because my, my screen doesn't I, I, I can hear you still. Oh, good. Um, yeah, once you started giving financial incentives to hospitals to use remdesivir and then later some incentives for monoclonal antibodies and you're disincentivizing these other drugs, of course, you know, hospitals are going to use what they're told. Um, the, you're absolutely right. In order to issue an emergency use authorization, and there were many issued for all sorts of things, including the 425 tests now are available in the United States for Jeez. COVID, under e all under EUA, none licensed, none properly approved or vetted by FDA. Ventilators or some ventilators are under EUA. Um, the monoclonal antibodies. And remdesivir initially was EUA, but then it received a license. Um, and there are other, you know, a bunch of other drugs and substances and things. For instance, masks are under an EUA, believe it or not. Wow. So uh, the EUA is important because it took away liability for these products from the manufacturer, the hospital, the doctor. Any, anybody selling them, anybody transporting them, the building in which they were used. I mean, it's a massive liability shield. So, um, you know, if your relative was in the hospital and was put on a ventilator that had an EUA and something terrible happened to them, you can't sue. Um, wow. <laughs> all the people, there are seven, over 7,000 people who have applied to the Department of Health and Human Services for money because they were injured by an EUA product. Mo you know, 4,000 were uh, applications for vaccine injuries and 3,000 for other products. And the government, and this is a government fund, the Congress has to uh, allocate money to it. And bureaucrats in the Department of Human Health and Human Services decide whether you get paid off. It has a one year statute of limitations. And so, so you have to apply within a year of getting the product and being injured. And yet, and yet it has a very high requirement for proof that the product actually caused your injury. Of course well, it does. So because the government has all the information about the, whether the injuries were occurred as a result of the products, because they have the data and we don't, and they aren't, this is mainly CDC, they're not sharing data, uh, FDA has some too, 
uh, about injuries from all these different drugs, from the new ventilators that were unlicensed and brought in, et cetera. Um, nobody's been paid off. At this point, not a single person has gotten any money of those over 7,000 applicants. And they can't go to a judge. There's no ability under this program to take it outside HHS. If you don't like their decision, and generally, they, in the past, they've compensated uh, 5 or 6% of applicants and denied the rest. If you don't like the decision, you can't go anywhere else with it. You're, you're stuck at the Department wow. of Health and Human Services. Wow. I wish I could say I'm surprised, but based on stuff I've read and basically just following how the government and the, and the corporations that own the government virtually operate, it's not, it's not surprising the way they come up with ways to cover all the bases, but, com but make it seem like we're here if you're injured and we have a fund. And then that's about as far as it goes. Right. And I mean, they didn't tell people who are getting the vaccines or many of these drugs that they're experimental. They're none of them licensed, except for remdesivir now is licensed, and that they wouldn't have the normal procedures that you would go through if you were in, if you were injured by a, some other vaccine or some other drug. Yeah. In, in which case, in some cases, you can sue the manufacturer. In other cases, there's a different program where you do get a judge, you know, and you do get a lawyer, and you can go through a legal process. But this is very different. It was created in 2005, legislation that was passed in 2005 for pandemics, and it was the program, the CICP, was established basically in 2010. And so no, almost nobody knows about it. There, there were only, before this pandemic, only 29 people had been compensated by this program. 29? In 10 years. Wow. Uh, out of about, you know, 500 who had applied. And that's and and we don't even know the vast amount of people who have been injured by um, medical error and so on over the years. But based on the numbers you read of it, how high it ranks in cause of death in the U.S., I mean, to have twenty nine people compensated is is obscene. It's, yeah. It's, the the other thing is that now this wasn't true of the program before earlier they had a, the possibility of giving you a more generous payout, but now they will only pay for um, lost wages and medical expenses that have not otherwise been compensated. And there's, and there's a, a ceiling on that. So it's not going to pay you forever for lost wages, just for a short period of time. You know, maybe this is, this is a government payout, so they're using taxpayer money anyway. Nothing, nothing's yes. coming out of the pocket of big farmer or any hospital corporations. Exactly. None of these corporations have had to pay into this program at all. <laughs> Sweet deal for them. So how, how then, you know, you laid a, a tremendous amount of groundwork here in terms of, of foundational information that people, I'm, I'm guessing a fair amount of people listening to this have never heard any of this before. How did you get sort of sucked into this vortex in the process of just trying to help your patients and do what you do, what a good doctor does? Well, I was the sort of most involved doctor fighting the anthrax vaccine mandates. Anthrax vaccine was the first vac first product ever to be issued an emergency use authorization, and it was slapped on the vaccine 
after a group that I worked with had gotten the license revoked. And this was in 2005. So this legislation uh, had to do with anthrax vaccine in a way, and so I was familiar with it. And as I said, because of my you know, ability to tell a natural epidemic from an unnatural <laughs> epidemic, I, you know, I just, I had the right background to, to uh, you know, I, I saw that other people weren't grasping with, with what was going on as easily, and I could, and so I felt like I should, and that's why I really reduced my practice to um, as minimal as I could just to take care of COVID patients and, you know, teach people what to do about COVID and do writing and researching because it just seemed like that was what was necessary. Sure. So you're now in the course of doing this work, as I mentioned in the intro, your home state of Maine decides, the the, the, um, the licensure board decides to crack down on so-called misinformation and disinformation specifically about the vaccine. And this ended up um, impacting you in a pretty major way. Yeah. So again, when you look back in hindsight, you see that there were a lot of programs that were brought in under the rubric of, of the pandemic. So for example, remdesivir was an old drug. It had been tested for Ebola. It had been tested for other things. Apparently Fauci or the powers that be wanted remdesivir to be used, licensed and used for whatever, some reason. And so they were quick to bring it in. And even when it failed its initial tests, um, the NIAID changed the goalposts twice on its pivotal clinical trial so that they could get it an emergency use authorization. WHO said, you know, it's in our trials, it's not helpful. In China, it wasn't helpful. In Europe, it wasn't helpful. But here in the United States, most people who were hospitalized with COVID wound up getting remdesivir for reasons best known to, to the, our federal officials. Um, but that seems to have been a plan. FDA gave it a license when it didn't really have, it, di it didn't really meet the stand, you know, normal criteria for a license, but they did after giving it an EUA a few months earlier. Um, and so this whole thing about misinformation and disinformation, it seems that that too that was something that the US government and maybe other governments wanted to bring in as a policy. They wanted to criminalize information that uh, challenged their narratives. And, you know, under the guise of a pandemic, when people are scared, they were able to uh, fund, you know, m massively fund mainstream media and social and most of the large social media to get a uniform narrative that would be, you know, pushed out 24-7. And again, this didn't only happen in the U.S., but in most of the Western world, if not all of it. So they had the same thing. I know in New Zealand, the prime minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, actually had the nerve to say, you know, listen to the government. We will tell you as much as we are able. We will be your sole source of truth. Mm -hmm. Don't listen to anyone else. Um, and so the just as the Nazis did, you know, before world before and during World War II, they began to create a body of law that would stand and buttress 
the policies they wanted to bring in and enforce. And so we are going through that now where first guidances were issued by federal several federal agencies about misinformation, disinformation, and a new word, malinformation, which means intentional misinformation, I guess. I suppose. And uh, several different executive branch agencies, you know, have issued policies about this misinformation business and um, the public health agencies also. And the Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murthy, has, there was an article in the New York Times about a month ago, you know, asking Americans to tell us, give us information about misinformation and disinformation, you know, tell us who, who's doing it and what you saw. So um, in California, a bill was introduced in the California legislature to criminalize medical misinformation. So I guess you can go to jail if that bill passes. In Maine, we haven't gotten so far as to make it a law, but the, uh, so in addition to all that going on at, at the level of um, agencies who are regulators, nonprofit medical organizations, these are nonprofits, have no regulatory authority, no authority whatsoever, also were probably paid off and started pushing out the same story we have to, uh, misinformation, disinformation are very bad. You know, we have to encourage people to take the vaccines and ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, you know, shouldn't be used. And we're going to consider it unprofessional for doctors to, you know, use these drugs or say things we don't like. And the American Medical Association and a, an organization that normally provides support to state medical boards came out with this, along, along with some other, a few other medical professional organizations, all of which have some linkages and also are linked to the CDC. And so this organization that supports, in the states and in some cities and territories, the medical board is the is a group usually of citizens, usually doctors and others, uh, supported by a state paid staff, and they decide which doctors are able to practice medicine and which are incompetent or are substance abusers or abusers okay. in other way. And so there are seventy one of these boards, and one is in my state that or get help with policies and training from an organization called the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is a nonprofit, has its own foundation, and its its uh, CEO gets about a million dollars a year in salary. Um, they pushed this idea out that the medical boards should go after doctors for misinformation, for prescribing ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and for saying mean things about these wonderful vaccines that we have that uh, are now becoming apparent to everybody except the medical board, you know, are worthless vaccines. That what little efficacy they have is gone in a few months, um, can't be restored for more than a couple of months with a booster, and they're dangerous. Anyway, my board had this, so this federation pushed this idea out to its 71 member boards, and somewhere between 10 and 15 
decided to go go along with them. And they started sending threatening letters to doctors who were prescribing these drugs or publicly stating negative things about ivermectin, uh, sorry, about the vaccines and uh, not going along with the government narrative. And so I was caught up in that. Now, was I really caught up in that or was there a particular attempt to silence me particularly? Um, it's difficult to know because the first two people who seem to have complained about me to the board, one of whom was seen at other demonstrations in Portland, Maine, and had and friends of mine said, we thought this person was an agent when he used to come to the uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street demonstrations. Okay. And the second person who complained to the board about me was a member of the staff of the uh, of the state state health department um, because I had testified at an open hearing to the pharmacy board about the suppression of ivermectin and had urged them last fall to stop this whisper campaign against ivermectin that on the books officially the there was no policy to suppress it and yet almost all the pharmacists were frightened to dispense because they knew they might be investigated. And yet the official policy was simply use it for legitimate purposes. So as a result of my testimony, it was reported by a state official to the medical board. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? You, you know, the, the, we so have te testimony, to testimony in an open hearing mm -hmm. it was twisted to turn around as an example of a main doctor um, preaching what they called misinformation or disinformation and thus worthy of uh, at least scrutiny, if not punishment. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, again, <laughs> when there's no, there's no written policy in Maine and in most places against misinformation and disinformation. So as I said, the, the Surgeon General has said this is a bad thing. A few people uh, and agencies at the federal level have said so, but in the state of Maine and, and medicine is regulated at the level of the state, not at the level of the federal government. So the feds have no authority over my practice of medicine and my license, but the state does. And the state has adopted no, no written guidances or anything would, that would restrict wow. my use of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine in acute COVID patients, nor would it would restrict my right to free speech. That's a First Amendment right that the states are not allowed to um, abolish. So um, anyway, uh, the state went after me anyway and summarily suspended my license the first time they had a meeting that discussed me, which was on January 11. Um, they said, you can, you can either withdraw your license, you know, you can make yourself inactive, but then I'd have to go through a process in the future to get the license back, or, you know, we're going to suspend you. And at, because you are an immediate danger to, to people in the state, it's like, wait a minute. Now, let me just tell you my background also. I have never had a malpractice case. I have had one complaint to a board in my entire career. And when they examined it, they said I had done everything right. And the person who complained apologized to me for in, incorrectly 
you know, making the complaint. And so, and there and are this no is, And this is more than 40 years of practicing, just so we 41 years. 41 yes. years, okay. So, you know, to say that I'm in immediate danger to the patients of Maine, and there's not, there's no patient complaints. The complaints are that they don't <laughs> like what I said and, and that I prescribed ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. That's it. So, wow. um, so it, you're, in, you're in immediate danger to the narrative, that's for sure. Right, exactly. Exactly. Wow. And we, we don't like, you know, we don't, do you really say this on Twitter? You know, they made up a bunch of questions for me to answer, you know. Is this what you say on your blog, you know? What do you believe about vaccines? Oh, come on, you guys. I'm, I'm allowed to tell my patients what I think about vaccines, and you guys do not have the authority to tell Good me feel. what I'm allowed to say and not say. And so the next step, if I have it correctly, is that they then tried to require you to undergo a psych evaluation based on this, uh, you know, this bizarre behavior that they're trying to punish you for. Exactly. So looking at it from their perspective, if they wanted to really throw the book at me, the, the only way they could do that was by ordering a psych eval. Um, because that gave them the right to do this immediate suspension without further investigation. And it okay. gave them the right to turn over my file to the media. And so the next day, I was in lots of national, um, you know, outlets, like yeah, the I, Miami I, I, Herald and the... I typed your name into Google and, and saw the, sl the slander and libel, <laughs> widespread stories. Yeah. It was incredible. I already just picked it up, took the narrative and ran with it. So, you know, some there was a publicist for me somewhere um, <laughs> spreading the news. Uh, apparently, I, re I came to realize that I was going to be a poster child to scare the rest of the doctors in the United States. See, you, you speak up like her, see what happens. Um, so in order to do that, in order to get all that publicity, they had to order the psych eval. And they, and they use that as a, they never said really, you know, what they thought was wrong with me. Of course, obviously, I, I don't really have a, I've never had a psychiatric or psychological history, never taken psycho, psychiatric drugs. You know, I'm not under the care of a psychiatrist or therapist. And um, I'm, you know, I'm not uh, cognitively impaired. So uh, they sort of tried to imply in their press releases that there's probably, you know, a, a substance abuse problem here. But I've never wow. been a substance abuser either. And, uh, you know, I might have a drink of alcohol once every couple of months. So, um, but that was the implication because they needed to find something. And then they, you know, tried to, they're, they're on a fishing expedition now. They've asked to, you know, collect lots more of my patient charts to go through to see if they can find something that might stick more than what they have already. Wow. And so as of now, the status of your case is, is uh, they're doing that exploratory stuff. And I would assume that, you know, you're, you're doing your own preparation and have your own legal team to, uh, to, to defend yourself. Yeah. So, so the way, <laughs> the way it works, the way the law works with these medical boards is that they have um, a very broad authority, which if they were reasonable, would be appropriate because, you know, each situation is going to require a different um, approach. However, it means that I 
unless I go to court, the only hearing I get is before the same group of people that have already found me guilty once. Oh, and, boy. Um, so it's not really a, 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 like a regular judicial process. And um, that's a problem. So my attorneys have filed suit in court, you know, against the board so that so that I don't have to undergo a psych exam and I don't have to give them all my charts and I don't have to do the other things that they've requested and or demanded rather, because if I don't hand them over and I didn't legally fight it, I would be in contempt and they would say that up, oh, that's it. Now, now her license is gone forever because she didn't comply. Um, wow. So, uh, you know, we're in legal proceedings now and we'll, we'll see where it goes. But um, in my state, it seems like it's very likely that since the staff of the board, they are the full timers, you know, the board just shows up once a month. Um, the staff really probably runs things and they will almost certainly follow the governor. And the governor in my state, who I spoke with a few weeks ago, um, was very rude to me. <laughs> I don't have to answer your question, Dr. Ness, after your conduct. After your so. conduct. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really a political case, I it think, sounds more like than it. a legal case. Well, I'm, I, I admire that, that if they're going to make you the poster child, they they picked the wrong person in the sense that you're going to, you have this stellar background and you're going to resist. You're going to be the one like, all right, I'm going to be to give voice to how many doctors and pharmacists and nurses across the country probably did not want to do, put into place those protocols or did not want to not uh, fill certain prescriptions. And I'm not, I'm not, for forgiving or passing judgment on them, they each have to deal with what their own decisions. But in your case, you followed your your own your heart and your personal values, and now they're trying to make you pay a price for it. And you're the one that's standing up. And I'm hoping, uh, I'm trusting that this will inspire other medical professionals to realize that it's your duty to do this. Like like these bureaucrats trying to be in charge of who gets treated and how. Um, need to be stood up to. And I'm glad that you're doing it. I, I know it's got to be an incredible amount of strain emotionally and also financially. Um, I, I do I would love if you tell listeners how there's any way for them to help support your legal, if, there, if there's some kind of fund or something that they can donate to, to, to keep the, your uh, battle going. Thank you. So this is very hard for other doctors to do. Luckily, I was, you know, close to retirement and so it's, I didn't need the money from my practice. And so I felt, you know, I could do this, but the costs of, of litigation are hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, um, I mean, a lot of people don't feel like they can pay that price. They can't risk losing the license, especially when they're young and they sure. have, a lot, you know, a lot of debt. So it's, it, it, you know, if, if there were no med, if you didn't have to go to medical boards and you could, and everybody could just go straight to court and it wasn't going to be that expensive, um, I, you know, I think more people would be, would more doctors and nurses would have gone forward and said, no, we're not going along with this because so many of them are, are very unhappy. Probably, you know, somewhere between 10 and 25% are very unhappy with the way things have gone. Could imagine. Um, 
But I, you know, I thought, well, if they're going to do this to me, I, you know, I'm not going to, I can, it's not comfortable, but I can financially afford to go through this process. And um, it's, you know, it's very important to me to preserve the First Amendment. The fact that somebody us, has yeah. the nerve to tell me I'm not allowed to give my professional opinion, which is backed by lots of, you know, reading of the literature, lots of citations in the in my writings, that I can't provide a professional opinion to a patient when that's what my job is. No, that nobody can get away with that. And so anyway, Children's Health Health Defense, a wonderful organization is helping me with my legal expenses. And if someone would donate, that would be very wonderful. The organization does all kinds of other great things uh, besides helping me. Um, they, they brought a number of cases uh, regarding the vaccine mandates and they have a, a sort of a newspaper, an online newspaper called The Defender every day. And there's Children's Health Defense TV programs every day, podcast, um, uh, podcast, and so, they're so branching out to countries around the world. I'm so happy to hear that. I I, I do get their daily um, email, and it's just a font of of information, and it, it's I, I look forward to reading it every day because I'm going to get the type of evidence that I can't can't get elsewhere. Their their team just they're they're information gathering team is just stellar and but so for you but for you in particular if somebody went to children health health defense um i think it's dot org but i'll put it in the show notes and they make a donation they could specifically um specify yes. that it's for your legal situation so i i will include all that information in the show notes of this episode so folks that hear that hear your story if they if they're in a position to donate they'll know exactly how to do it Thank you very much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for what you do. So as we begin to wrap up here, I just, I'm just going to ask a more abstract or philosophical question. And to people listening, I've, the listeners to this show and, and whoever may get this passed on to them, they, they run a broad, a, a broad cross section. Some of them kind of caught on to the COVID narrative very early on. Others are just now questioning. Some people are still fearfully clinging to their masks. I live here in New York City. I, it's it's uh, it feels it feels like you're going to have to pry those masks off of most people's faces here. With they're just mandating themselves. Mm -hmm. So what what do you say? What would you say to someone in terms of like what people? everyday people can do to resist and, and get more people to question and stop complying. Um, just a general information about where we are now more than two years since this whole thing began. Okay. Um, as far as the masks go, the CDC said the cloth masks don't work. And so people replace them with surgical masks. Well, the surgical masks are no better most of them yeah. aren't even real surgical masks, but they're no better than all they do is stop globs of saliva or nasal secretions from coming out. But that's it. Um, and N95 can prevent 95 percent of um, material coming out of you and coming into you. But it has to be worn very tightly. It, it has to be put on properly, taken off properly, or you can contaminate yourself with virus that has you know impacted against the mask and nobody's been taught how to do that i i picked up some of these supposed free n95 masks at the drugstore that the government is giving out and they're not any 95 masks they're cheap little 
BS masks. They're wow. designed to make you think that you're getting something, but they're not. They're nothing. They're they're just basically equivalent to the cloth masks. Um, so they don't work. If you're out of doors, you bl believe me, you don't need a mask. The wind is blow is diluting the virus. Don't worry about it. If you can get yourself some hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, go on the FLCCC website, uh, get the supplements they recommend, take aspirin for at least a month, one a day when you get COVID. Um, the, those are things that will really help you get over it quicker, and then you'll get a much better immunity than you can possibly get. It's well acknowledged now in, in lots of media from the vaccines. How to how, so? How to respond? Well, I think it's really important if you're like me to not comply with anything. Um, I think because we have to show ourselves. I live in a very small town, eight thousand people, and the fact that there's a group called uh, Main Stands Up that meets in my town, and we have about 40, 40 or fifty people who sometimes show up. We usually get about twenty or thirty at the meetings. It makes people so happy to see that there's actually a large group of people who feel the way they do, but when they're Absolutely. out and about, they don't recognize that. And so we need to be signaling to each other that there are, in fact, many of us, probably we're half the country. Um, I think, you know, finding ways to signal that and talking to people. So really important, talk to your doctor if you, you know, oh, Everyone I speak to says, oh, my doctor won't give me ivermectin. My doctor's terrible. Well, you know what? If all, if half the doctor's patients told them what they thought, then the doctor would be forced to start thinking, you know, and if they all quit that doctor and said, we're not going to doctors who, um, you know, are going to treat me in a way that I feel is harmful when I get COVID, I'm not going along with it. So you have to figure that out. Obviously, there's very few options when you need to go in the hospital. But if you get the medicines that you need ahead of time and have them available to you, or if you can get, even if you can get them at the last minute, and there are places where you can get them overnighted to you, you shouldn't need to go into the hospital. Almost, almost nobody, unless very high-risk people, will need to go into the hospital if they get treated early. So that's very important. And... Um, consider running for office or helping candidates that are running. We have to get new leaders. You know, we, we have a crop of people that have been corrupted and they're not working for us and we, we need to replace them. We have to find a way and people have to stand up. This is a war that we're in. We are, this is a coup d'etat and um, we have to overturn it. The coup has occurred. The wrong yes. side is in control of this country and many others. And, um, but, you know, they can't corrupt everybody. A tremendous amount of money was printed. You know, a, a probably at least a billion dollars was given just to the mass media alone yeah. in the United States, maybe up to 10 billion. And um, they can't keep printing money and buying everybody off forever. And eventually we will be the majority. You have to nicely talk to the people you meet, let them know how you feel, let them know there's, you know, there's camaraderie out there and uh, we will eventually get to critical mass and then we'll win. Uh, thank you for that. That's wonderful. I, I feel the same way. I, I have my moments where 
I it feels literally impossible, particularly living in a place like New York City, surrounded with with people who seem, for all intents and purposes, seem to be like attached to the concept of this fear matrix and they don't want to let go but then as you said when you when you take a chance and talk to people and you tell them what you think and where you stand and what you read and who you spoke to you find there's a lot more people who aren't complying they're just not sure how to signal that whether it's safe and when you look at the amount of people who didn't get the jab and when they talk about who got it who knows how many of those people even got fake vax cards a big chunk of american adults didn't get it and i i'm sure the powers that um that shouldn't be are hmm. quite shocked and disappointed to see that their nefarious plan was was simply cut off at the past by people who said no who just simply said no not me i'm not taking an experimental drug created at warp speed and that gives me a fair amount of motivation and hope and keeps me i've been writing for decades but i've been doing a podcast now a lot more recently and i just feel like any chance i can get to talk to someone like you that could share so much expertise and personal experience it's just laying down this foundation of evidence of alternative of context alternative information so that we're not telling anyone what to think but we're telling them to gather a lot more information before you come to a conclusion and i deeply appreciate you taking time to share um all your experiences with us and i am 100% rooting for you in this uh, case that you're in and and just filled with admiration that you put your feet down, foot down and said, no, not me. You're not going to push me around. And and the, the more people like you who do that, there's going to be more doctors, more nurses, more pharmacists who just say enough of this. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't why I, I'm in this field. And, and uh, you're leading by example. And for that, I, I can't thank you enough. Hey, thank you so much, Mickey. You take care. All right. Thank you for being here. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye. I'll be back with my story of the week right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available only to paid subscribers. So I thank you in advance for making that commitment. It really makes a difference. In addition, if you'll scroll through, scroll through the show notes, you'll see that I have a link in there for the project I do to help homeless women in New York City. Your support is most welcome. There's a link in there for a very cool post-woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is. And there's also a link in there for my NFT digital art photography. If you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible, please click that link, check it out, and maybe maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art. So on that note, thank you again. And most importantly, please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com. And now let's get back to the show. This week's story takes place back in early 2002. My wife at the time, Michelle, began experiencing severe abdominal discomfort in the lower right quadrant. Ever cautious about subjecting herself to the demoralizing disease care labyrinth, she was in no hurry to visit our local emergency room. 
However, when the pain became too much to ignore, the emergency room is precisely where we ended up, probably a few minutes after midnight. Now, a male complaining of pain in the lower right abdomen would have garnered an almost immediate diagnosis of appendicitis. For women, it requires further testing. This reality became particularly germane when we realized that the CAT scan technician was not on duty so late at night, and the attending physician could not prescribe Michelle a painkiller until a diagnosis was made, which of course required the CAT scan technician. Roughly 12 agonizing hours later, a scan was finally performed, but shortly afterwards, a doctor came to speak with us. It seems the tests were, shall we say, inconclusive. Your wife is too thin, the man in the white coat told me. Her body fat is so low that we can't get the contrast we need on the scan. Just perfect, I thought to myself. It's absolutely ideal that a defective system like this is designed to deal specifically with those who have bought into the standard American diet slash lifestyle. Michelle's family had arrived by then, and they thought it was amusing to remark that the body fat contrast conundrum proved that she needed to change her eating habits. After what turned out to be 17 hours of waiting in misery until finally being scheduled for an appendectomy, Michelle was clearly in no mood to laugh. I'll tell you what else is incomical about the disease care cartels, nutritional training at America's medical schools. Most of them teach less than 25 hours of nutrition over four years, and less than 20% of U.S. medical schools have a single required course in nutrition. According to Dr. Neil Pinckney, author of the Healthy Heart Handbook, the average amount of nutritional training was less than three hours out of more than 3,500 hours of medical training. Thus, even the most well-meaning and diligent physician is often ill-equipped to offer legitimate help within the structure he or she was trained in. They probably get their nutritional information from the same articles and websites as anyone else. No wonder hospital food is so frightening and so many medical establishments feature a fast food restaurant on premises. Hey, I guess they were just trying to make sure those expensive CAT scans can find contrast, right? Anyway, Michelle was finally given something to numb the pain and was pretty much out of it when a surgeon finally arrived. He told me that he assumed it was appendicitis and asked for my okay to perform an appendectomy. The appendix is vestigial, he assured me. It's no big deal. I replied, I'm not surprised to learn that you see it that way, but I'm also not in the habit of giving the green light to having an organ removed from a loved one's body. The surgeon was stunned to have his authority questioned, particularly in front of a group of people. But finally, when the pain got bad enough to overwhelm the pain meds, I said yes. I just wanted Michelle to stop hurting. This was two decades ago, and things have only gotten demonstrably worse. If the people in this country had even an iota of courage, they would revolt based solely on the so-called health care issue alone. But until such a revolution happens, if you or someone you love is faced with any kind of medical interaction or intervention, remember, keep your guard up.